Last Tuesday's election was a bloodbath for Missouri Democrats. And State Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal has a lot to say about where her party should go from here. The University City Democrat joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair to say. say, Hands to kiss and babies to shake. (laughs) But uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. It's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And returning to the show for the third time, our first guest post-election. We have, as our special guest today... Maria Chappelle Nadal. The state senator for the beautiful 14th Senatorial District, one of my favorite Senate districts. I'm sure it's your favorite one, although... Absolutely, it's my favorite one. I was going to say the 12th District is also very scenic as well. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about a lot of things today. We're going to be talking about the election, where the Democratic Party goes from here, radioactive waste in the Westlake and Bridgeton landfill. Uh, well, uh, first, just give our listeners just a little thing about where your district is and what it takes in. So, All right. First of all, to the south, the district incorporates downtown Clayton. It goes all the way north to the Missouri River. It includes parts of Hazelwood and Florissant. Um, Not all, but some. There are a total of 41 municipalities that I represent, including uh, the the area that um, is around the airport. So Mm -hmm. I have the airport. I have Earth City. um, Of course, Bridgeton, the upper half of Bridgeton now after redistricting, and everything in the middle. Do you have the most municipalities out of any senators? Yes. Yes, I do. That's, that must be, you must be very proud of that fact. Well, it probably drives you a little crazy, though, because you're dealing with, what, 41 mayors? Well, this is what I do. I have quarterly meetings with all the mayors, and I have done so for the last six years because I wanted to give them an opportunity to bring to the table any of the issues that they may have. Yes, it's obviously very difficult to have 41 mayors and 10 school districts that I represent, but I thought as long as I give each and every one an opportunity to communicate with their state senator, um, we would have a, a good relationship. So this is, as I said in the outset, this is our first podcast since last Tuesday's election. If you haven't heard already, Donald Trump is going to be president of the United States. Republicans won every statewide office they ran for. There will be super majorities of Republicans in the Missouri legislature, although that was the case before the election. You're, you're one of, I guess, 10 Democrats in the Senate, but you also are a fiercely independent and pragmatic senator. So you don't always go the party line on things. I'm just interested to hear your general thoughts about what happened last Tuesday, what you're hearing from constituents, and we'll kind of just jump off from the conversation from there. Being one of eight Democrats in the Senate is a, a very tough job. Um, it, I am very proud to have colleagues who are dedicated to democratic values that we keep very near and dear to us. Um, There are issues that come up where we don't always agree. I have always told people that the district that I represent is my priority, and that comes first before anything else, the district that I represent. Um, And sometimes uh, that means that I'm on, on differing sides, and one of those examples is education. I am the only state senator who has two unaccredited school districts in their district 
district. I am the senator who represents Ferguson, and I am the senator who represents uh, two landfills that have radioactive waste as well as a creek, Coldwater Creek, that also has radioactive waste in it. So my hands are quite full at this moment, um, but it is a job that I take very seriously, and I put the people of the district first, um, and if that means that I come on a different side sometimes, then that's what happens. Now, I know you had been critical of some of the Democrats, including Governor Jay Nixon, Mm -hmm. on various issues from Ferguson and the radioactive waste. Do you think that the Republicans are going to be any more responsive or sort of what are you what vibes are you getting? I don't know what we have to go back to. I had a bill that I sponsored asking for a a a buyout of the 91 homes that are right across from the landfill. And that bill passed out 10 to 1 of the Commerce Committee. And I have talked to Senator Ryan Sylvie. He understands the issue. Um, There was great debate on that bill in the Senate. And I am very hopeful that we are able to bring that bill up again, or we have movement in Congress. Unfortunately, the House Resolution 4100 did not get out of committee. I am very concerned about the health and well-being of residents who not only live around the, the landfill, but also the people who live uh, very close to Coldwater Creek, because we have have um, a a history of contamination. Um, If you think about communities that are no longer existing, such as Robertson, Missouri, an African-American, historic African-American community, um, 80% of those people who live there in that historic community either got cancer or died from cancer. And it is because of a landfill that was open for only about six or seven years in the 50s where there was radioactive waste that was dumped there and many of those residents got sick and they ended up dying but um, as I tell people and I at the end of this of December I will have held 62 town hall meetings on radioactive waste (coughs) 21 of those meetings will have been held in six weeks alone between November and December so this is a very serious matter we have cancer clusters in West and North County Um, a lot of people put their attention at the Westlake landfill Bridgeton landfill that's the end of the story we have unscrupulous haulers who decide to instead of um, doing what the federal government said at the time, which was to take this waste to Colorado at that time, decided to put profits over people and just ended up having um, some decisions that they made that are now putting people at risk of getting cancer or autoimmune diseases. What would you want to see happen? Because there's been proposals to switch the, the oversight from EPA to the board, uh, the uh, Corps of Engineers. Yes. Would you want to see that? Would you want to see the, the radioactive waste that's in the landfill extracted and moved somewhere else? I want to know, like, what do you think the solution is from, from a public policy standpoint? Since 2013, I have filed the bill to remove the EPA and replace it with FUSRAP, which is the formerly utilized Sites Remedial Action Program. Um, this is the responsibility, the sole responsibility of the federal government, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why I ran for Congress in the first place. We are going back all 
all the way to um, 1930s, um, where there are three presidents who are involved in this project. There are departments that no longer exist in federal government. Um, we created the Department of War, created this program, um, the Manhattan Project, to protect our country. However, um, going about that entire thing, um, we were not responsible after the war and during the Cold War in getting rid of that waste in a, a, a way that people would not be endangered. And so here's what I want, first of all. Number one, there should be a congressional committee that reviews the EPA and their handling of this, not only the EPA, but also the Department of Energy, because that existed before the EPA did. Number two, we need to have immediate um, buyout, not just in those 91 neighborhoods, but we also need to look at at least three miles that extend from the landfill and that extend from uh, Coldwater Creek as well. Um, as I am finding in my my studies and my research, there are a number of people uh, who have been getting sick around Coldwater Creek, don't know it. Um, and unfortunately, I think this is a matter of a lot of neighbors not talking to other neighbors. There is a, a person who lives in 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 Bridgeton who lives three miles away from the landfill and she's been going door to door God bless her she's been going door to door asking neighbors about illnesses that they've had and in her first reporting she said Maria out of 47 homes there are 25 homes where people have gotten cancer or I'm sorry people have died of cancer out of 47 homes and that's three miles away from the Bridgeton landfill uh, this contamination is not only airborne um, but it is also in our groundwater. You and other media outlets have reported uh, in the last month that in the groundwater there has been discovered benzene um, as well as tooling, and you also have some raffinate in the water contamination as well. Um, I have been greatly concerned about the water intake centers in North County and North City. We have gotten reporting um, from American Water that the water is safe. However, what we should be concerned about is the groundwater um, that is near the water pipes going into bu buildings around the landfill. I am afraid that, and I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but my suspicion is that we have radioactive contaminants seeping through our water pipes and getting into the water. I am getting reports of people who are working at Charter, people who are working at AT&T, people who are working at UPS, and people who are working at Frito-Lay who have gotten sick by drinking the water. I think there's contamination that is getting into the water through the groundwater. Now, the site is split between two congressional districts. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I've got a cold, folks. Okay, so uh, Ann Wagner has part of it, and Lacey Clay is the other half. I know they've sponsored a bill last session, but how responsive have they been, in your view, and what do you think is going to be happening now? Um the Republican edge in the U.S. House decreases slightly, but it doesn't really matter since GOP is still in control, and now they have the White House. So just kind of what, what's your sense of 
of how responsive they've been or not. Mrs. Wagner has responded by blaming Democrats. Mr. Clay has been responding by blaming Republicans. I look at their finance contributions. Mallinckrodt has given to both of them. Uh, the attorneys locally who are representing the Cotter Corporation have given to both of them. Um, there were five or six environmental bills that passed out of committee within the last five or six weeks, and not one of them was 4,100. I think it was um, the the mission to help residents in um, in St. Louis with this issue um, was was restricted because of the corporate interests and the amount of money that these corporations who are liable would have to pay. This would be billions of dollars that should come back to um, St. Louis because the irresponsibility of um, the former Cotter Corporation, which is now Exelon. Right. Well, and then you've got Senator Blunt's son, who's one of the lobbyists for Exelon. Yes. So how responsive is him? In other words, is there anybody in the congressional de- delegation in the Senate or the House who has, who has been particularly responsive to this? I know there was something that passed the Senate last session. Yes. But, but, but now that's dead. Yes. You know. That's, Absolutely. Okay, so ahead. let me tell you, historically, if you look at at documents um, that are at UMSL and other places, there are only two federally elected officials who stand out. One of them being Kit Bond. He wrote a letter in 1996 referring to the amount of radioactive waste that we had over 100 vicinities, if you counted Sandia, Los Alamos, um, and some other places. We had more contamination than any of those those places. St. Louis is known as the secret city um, because we are the ones who had this this radioactive waste, this uranium, the, the most potent uranium in the entire world from a mine in the Belgian Congo called Chinkalabwe. Um, the other the other congressional um, leader historically that has been very prominent in this is U.S. Representative Beekner. Um, he was huge in trying to deal with uh, Coldwater Creek. Was that a Missouri rep or was it somebody else? He was else? a Missouri rep from Kirkwood. Yeah, Jack, okay. Jack Beekner. Yeah. Okay. Yes. yes. He now lives in Washington, D.C. I've talked to his wife. He has Alzheimer's. But um, I am very, um, you know, I'm a Democrat, but I got to say, when I look through these historical papers and I see only Kit Bond and U.S. Representative Beekner standing up for people who well, are Beekner getting contaminated. And see, here's the other thing. There are other people who knew about this. Um, in 1981, there is a document. Um, actually, it's a St. Louis Post-Dispatch article where you had the former mayor, Powell, or Palmer from Hazelwood, who said that we need to deal with this situation as, as urgently and as soon as possible because we've been studying it for the last 30 years. That is what he said in 1981, and at the time, in the article, Vince Shamel was mentioned. Furthermore, there is a four-page letter that was written um, by the the director of the St. Louis City Health Department who also cited that there would be a problem with long-term exposure of this radioactive waste in the ground. 
and it would be um, a huge problem for people um, and their health. And that was also under Vince Shamel, and, th- and that's 1986. So there are a lot of people who have known about this and have done absolutely nothing about it. And this could segue into to other things, but you have an attorney general and a new governor who have never run for office before. A lot of their financial contributions frankly came from outside of Missouri and not the usual donor pool that typically funds politicians of both yes. parties. I I don't know if you've talked to Josh Hawley or Eric Greitens yet. I assume you haven't. But do you think that they would be receptive to not not only listening to your point of view, but actually following through on it, given that they're both newcomers and they they may not have the 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 interest that you kind of alluded Here's to. Here's my response to that. I'm yeah. going to be very frank. Sure. If they say that they're pro-life and ignore <laughs> this issue, they're liars. Elaborate. Well, this is a pro-life issue. This is about people who are dying and getting sick. So I get phone calls of mothers who are crying. I have children who are born without eyes. I have children who are born with double sets of teeth. I have an employee at Frito-Lay who doesn't have a, a background in brain tumors. And after two years of working there, because the windows are open, had a brain tumor that she had to get removed. Um, you have the rates of brain tumors in one zip code alone near the landfill um, is 300 times higher. Um, Appendix cancer happens one out of a million people. It's a very rare disease, right? It's very, very rare. Out of a population of 120,000 people in North County, there are over 85 cases. The state of Missouri should only have no more than seven cases. We have over 85. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that by the tracking of an uh, independent group, but also I have have added more numbers to that because of um, the number of town hall meetings I have had in the district. So this is an enormous issue, and a lot of people don't like to talk about radioactive waste because it's not a sexy issue to talk about. But this is a pro-life issue, and if there is anyone who is out there who purports that they are pro-life, they are absolute liars if they don't deal with this issue. Now, looking at this more broadly as part of what's going to be facing um, the General Assembly in January. Technically, this is a federal issue, but as but as you've alluded to, you often need state help on this or state interests. Uh, what do you see as, I mean, with the Republicans now controlling everything, um, what do you think will be, A, your influence, B, how will you be able to proceed on a number of issues that I know you've been uh, vocal about, aside from the landfill? I think this is a great opportunity to deal with children who are in unaccredited school districts. We have generations of children of color and in poverty who have not gotten an opportunity to escape the school buildings that they're in um, that have relentlessly been just terrible when it comes to giving, providing them quality education. We have generations of people um, who have a, a very, very, very substandard education. And I want to give children an opportunity to succeed. I had that opportunity, but because I had a mother who committed and worked really hard to give me an extra opportunity that most would, 99% of the kids that I represent don't have those same resources so that they can go to Clayton High School like I did. 
So you were the sponsor. I don't know if you were the sponsor, but you were a major driver of transfer bills in 2014 and 2015. Some say that they were your bills because you worked so hard on them. Governor Nixon vetoed both of them for various reasons. Now, we had Eric Greitens on this show in January. I played him a clip of uh, Nixon in 2008 basically saying he'd veto anything he perceived as a voucher bill. Mm -hmm. And Greitens proceeded to say that Nixon was wrong for doing that. And he would consider a whole host of education things. That signaled to me that if the 2014 bill, which had the option of children in unaccredited school districts transferring to non-sectarian schools, if that provision had landed on Governor Greitens' desk, along with everything else, he probably would have signed that bill. So I have to imagine, given that the whole line in the sand that Nixon drew, which probably led to the demise of both of those bills, is no longer on the table— you have to be a little bit more optimistic you're going to be able to Absolutely. get it done. Absolutely. I have already talked to leadership in the House. Um, in fact, I received the phone call. And, um, you know, we are reformatting the bill, the transfer bill that I sponsored in 13 and 14 okay. and 15. Um, and I have to say, I have been, just to clarify, I've always been a huge opponent of school vouchers. Yes, and I was about to say, um, and you're about to explain this yes. too, but continue. So, but what I'm talking about when it comes to transfers, <laughs> it goes back to to a, a 1993 um, piece of legislation that we adopted into statute that says if we fall off the cliff, which we have, then that means that these are the certain options that these are the options that children have, which means that they get to go to an accredited school district. Now, what we did not anticipate at that time is that we would get to a point where an entire school district would have that opportunity. So what I try to do is keep communities in place. I want to keep a Normandy school district. I want to keep a Riverview school district. And frankly, there are parents evenly split who are on both sides who want their kids to have an opportunity to have their kid go to a fully accredited building. Um, And then the legislation that I did work on very hard um, for a number of years, we got to a point where we could financially keep in place a Normandy and a Riverview, but also keep those kids who are in unaccredited buildings, give them that opportunity to either transfer to a a building within the district that's fully accredited or go to a school district um, nearby or whatever they choose um, that is fully accredited. Um, And so we are revisiting that. There are certain elements of the bill um, that we need to change because we've made several adoptions through other uh, pieces of legislation from that. I did some corrections on on charter schools. That needed to change, um, which was um, eventually in the last couple of years um, just cleaning up some stuff. Um, But we are on it. Our staff is on it. And I want to give children, uh, minority children and low-income children, the opportunity to succeed and thrive so they do not have to live within a four-block radius of their home and not have hope. What I was going to say, the caveat I mentioned is the reason that uh, provision in 2014 about the non-sectarian private schools was in was was more of legislative reality, that it would get conservative Republicans on board with it. Uh, you had you had come on our show before and saying you're not necessarily a voucher person, no. but you're you're also a pragmatist and you wanted to get something done. Yeah, basically. this is about making sausage. You yeah. know, um, one of the reasons that that we lose. Um, <laughs> 
some lose as as Democrats is because we are not willing to make the sausage. And a great example of that is Amendment 3 that just passed, right? Or it just failed. It just failed. It just failed, right? So last year I was for Amendment 3, and then they made all of these provisions, added all of these provisions um, that were anti-stem cell, anti-choice. And I said, I can't compromise all of that. I can't do that. But what I can do is say, hey, tobacco companies, hey, um, education providers, we need to be in a place um, where we're doing the best that we can in our communities. And there are some people who are willing to um, just give up the baby. What's the saying? Give up the baby? Throw out the the baby in the bathwater. Yeah. Um, And there are other people who... um, who are more pragmatists mm-hmm. and pragmatic and they will they will say hey if we can move this amount this year great if we can move a little bit further this next year wonderful a good example of that is deadly force which passed this year mm-hmm. um it's something that was underreported um in the media in st louis but i'm glad that we finally have language that upgraded our statutes um uh, that were at least 30 years old. <laughs> I got to ask about that because it, that statute that you replaced was already unconstitutional. So you basically just updated it to make it constitutional. Like what practically, what yeah. is the impact of that? It's th- it's huge, actually. Tell me. So I, um, well, there's a big change. Um, there are a couple of big changes. As most people know, I like to study legislation um, and I I go to far extents. Uh, as you know, my filibuster, my 10-hour filibuster, I studied for six weeks for that. I was on point the entire time, um, and I didn't waste time in that filibuster. So when it came to deadly force, I had um, lawyers around town who took weekend afternoons to help me study on that one. And there are two really essential things. Um, you have in, in a lot of people go to the standard Tennessee versus Garner. Um, that is a very important case. Everybody refers to that. However, in that opinion at the Supreme Court, you had Justice Rehnquist, who had a problem with the, the phraseology of reasonableness. And and so in 1989, there was another case that came before the Supreme Court. And at that point, Justice Rehnquist was able to make the change to objective reasonableness, what that does um, is changes, which is really essential. A lot of people were talking about Bob McCullough and the fact that he did not give the proper instructions to the jury. Well, having that phrase, objective reasonableness, actually makes a change um, when it comes to jury instructions. And so most people don't know that. Um, and then there are other things that are really important. But there are two cases, and I'm forgetting the name of the, the 1989 case, but you have Tennessee versus versus Garner, and then you have the updated objective reasonableness. A lot of people were dealing with probable cause. I know Senator Nasheed wanted to include probable cause. However, we do not have probable cause defined in state statute anywhere. It is defined by case, mm-hmm. case law. Yeah, that, that's important. So are you concerned at all with all everything? It's been over two years since, since the whole Ferguson thing started with the death of Michael Brown. And during the Republican uh, gubernatorial battle over the summer. I mean, their main complaint was was that they said there was lack of law and order. There should have been more police. You know, well, you heard the angle. So it was very much 
uh, pro-police, uh, a feeling that um, there had not been enough to uh, guard against some of the, the fires and other property damage and the pledges that they would do something about it. And Greitens even made comments, you know, like d defending um, the the police officer, Darren Wilson. <coughs> Look, with all with that as the backdrop, my my question is: Do you think there's going to be any lessons, any constructive lessons that um, the General Assembly and the new governor take going forward on Ferguson, or is this just going to be something that they see in the rearview mirror and they really don't want to deal with? You know, I that's an interesting question that you posed. I think two things really. One, um, it, it's for Republicans. They're always pro-law, but you know what? I'm pro-law, too. And even preceding Ferguson, I was going on ride-alongs with police officers. Um, in fact, some of my best friends are police officers and, and realized the error in judgment that um, some minority police officers have and take um, in law enforcement. I think it's very important that we adopt certain principles, such as cultural understanding. Um, you know, I am a woman of color. And I also happen to have a Hispanic mother. My personality is very much like my family on my mother's side, not my father's side. My father's side, they're very cool. But there are people who are out there, including in the Democratic Party, who don't understand that, you know, Maria is a quite flavorful person. And many African-Americans are, are very colorful people as well in their approach. Um, and I think we get into a philosophical conversation about what assimilation is versus what your true self is. And I don't think think that anyone um, should should just be removed from being who they are. Um, and I find oftentimes that there are Republicans and others who um, want us to fit into a mold as African-Americans, and that just is not working. Um, and so that's why there's a lot of frustration. But I think cultural understanding is important. Police officers need to live within the community in which they serve. I'm a huge proponent of that. And I also think uh, that that in our practice, in our conversations, we try to build bridges. Um, that's what's really important. In fact, one of my my good friends who I talk to often and is on my Facebook page who is a police officer I remember doing Ferguson crying on the phone with him mm -hmm. and he says to me Maria for the last 20, 20 years of my service everything that happened on August 9th went down the drain you know that is he's a white officer he is committed to the people in this community in this region and he saw that that approach of just a, going to an unarmed person um having a body lay on the ground for four and a half hours for people to see that is not proper procedure right and so there are certain things that that we have to incorporate with every law enforcement jurisdiction um, that is conducive to the community that they serve. In the University City, for example, mm -hmm. um, our chief, our chief um, Adams, who I'm very close with, um, who I have on my speed dial, um, and and also Carol, uh, she's also exceptional. We understand; they understand the community. 
You know, they understand our, our big risk in University City is that we live in little Israel and we have a lot of threats in University City. And so when things happen, we have to be on alert. That's one of our community issues that we have to deal with. So we need to have a law enforcement that is way more sensitive to all the community um synagogues that we have mm-hmm. um, but also half of our community is african-american and we just want to make sure from the african-american perspective that our young people are going to be listened to they're not going to be targeted but the other issue that we have um, is making sure that um, our our downtown which happens to be the loop is very safe for our business owners mm-hmm. That is what we care about in our our 63130 zip code. In other communities, you have to worry about, um, certainly gangs, you have to worry about um, the, what's the, the hit and grab game? I mm. forgot what they call that in St. Louis City. Mm. Um, the, num- the amount of violence, the, the thefts, the burglaries. Um, when I was on the campaign trail this summer, one of the biggest issues that came up is dumping in St. Louis City. And it's an issue that has been totally ignored um the what i do appreciate which i think st louis city does a great job at they go to these neighborhood meetings um that was really impressive i had not seen it like that we have a a city folk a city folk like our neighborhood meetings but yes it's absolutely amazing and the police officers give updates on on burglaries robberies rapes all that stuff um so i think the more Um, police officers engage in the community and try to understand the position that people are coming from, which may not be like their own, the better we're off. But we have to understand that we all have a different filter. Um, We all have different experiences. And there are people um, that I represent and who I don't represent who do feel as though they have been victimized again and again. And when they see police officers, they feel there's an immediate threat and it's important for people like myself and police officers to try to warm over those feelings so that we can build stronger relationships. So let's transition into politics for for our last segment. So as you alluded to, you ran for Congress this year. You were unsuccessful. Um, Congressman (laughs) Lacey Clay won by a substantial margin, but your, your campaign wasn't not impactful. It did have an impact in a sense that I'm about to explain. You ended up providing financial assistance to a number of candidates that ended up winning. Rochelle Walton Gray in the 4th County Council District, Jay Mosley, a state rep who won a primary and recently beat Keith English, and eventually Bruce Franks after his revote. You were early supporters of all of them. You provided them with substantial financial resources, as well as a number of committee people as well. So I'm sure you look back at this year with kind of you know, mix, I would say mixed emotions, because I'm sure you're not happy that you lost. You'd never lost an election before. But in some ways, you you were successful on a local level at getting candidates that you supported in office. So I'm, that's my assumption. I want to kind of hear your view of how you feel after this year, given the, the highs and the lows there. 
Well, from the very beginning, I wanted to leave a legacy. And once you take office and um, you are responsible for people's lives, you have to start thinking about your legacy. So, yes, I supported Bruce Franks and Rochelle Walton-Grade. She's the first African-American to represent the fourth county council seat. And also, you know, politically, I have a problem, substantial problem with Steve Stinker. Um, and as, as people now know, um, he makes decisions that are not practical for uh, St. Louis County residents. Um, but aside from that, I, wa- I, I wanted to support people who understood Ferguson, um, who understood racial strife and economic strife. Um, but I wanted to leave a legacy. That was the most important thing to me. Um, I, bl- I was young. When I was first elected, I think um, I was 28, 29 <laughs> years old, right? Um, I did not have someone who just up and gave me money. I didn't have that. Uh, I had to work my buns off, and I wanted to provide a younger generation, a new generation of people, an opportunity to succeed politically, because when I'm older and gray, they're going to be the ones who are going to be making uh, the decisions on my behalf. Um, And I also think that we need a sea change when it comes to politics in St. Louis. It's very old. It's a very small group of people um, who are in the political establishment here. I have always and will remain anti-establishment. And so the people that I supported in many ways are anti-establishment. They believe in their ground game. They believe in doing whatever is necessary for representing people. Um, So I'm proud of of Annie Rice, uh, but I'm also proud of of Tony Zabrowski, who did not win. I am proud of Marty. Murray, who won, who is an exceptional leader and has taken even more so of a leadership role. I'm very proud of Rasheen. Uh, he is a, a Who won Ferguson. a special election to right. the fifth uh, uh, yes. ward uh, committeeman. Continue. Absolutely. Um, so I'm looking for a new generation of people to represent St. Louis, and I am proud to be part of that. Now, you're going to be term limited yes. in 2018, so you can't run again for your seat. Have you already started thinking about what you might want to do next? Yes. And, and then and then the general climate for Democrats. But go ahead and ask the first answer the first question. There are several options that are out there that I'm weighing, um, and I'm taking them all very seriously. What is in front of me right now is dealing with radioactive waste because mm-hmm. that is my crusade, um, and I just don't think that allowing people to get cancer and die um, is is acceptable for anyone, regardless of if you're Democrat or Republican. Um, so that is my crusade crusade at the the moment. Um, And every day I'm thinking about what I'm going to do. And I just, what I do want to stay committed to is public service in one way or the other. I started off working for the former Lieutenant Governor, Joe Maxwell, and that was a wonderful opportunity, um, one in which a lot of people don't get. And I'm very proud to have that opportunity. Um, But I think in terms of Republicans and Democrats and where we are moving as Democrats, we're going to have to change the game because we're going to be in this scenario for quite a long time if um, the Democratic Party does not um, bend a little bit to the needs of people. What I look at are facts. 
facts are, in Ferguson, not too many Democrats showed up, period. They did not. They weren't on the streets. There's a lot of people, you know, I remember talking to Claire McCaskill. I will will never back down on this. I remember being in the street on West Florissant and being on the phone on Wednesday, which had to be the 13th of August in 2014. That was the first day I was there. But continue. Yeah. And we were just about to get tear gassed, and Congress was on a vacation at the time, and she came home immediately, immediately. I'll never forget that, and I will always talk about that fact. Um, I had conversations with with our attorney general during that time period. But for the most part, um, our limousine liberals did not show up and did not talk. In fact, they're like, why are they, why are they talking about all of this? Can't they just quiet it down? Um, you know, and ultimately we realized who was going to be accepting of communities that look like the one that I serve. Um, what I will not forget Ever, and this is my opportunity to talk about it. Sure. As I said, Congress was on a five-week break. Five-week break in August. And our congressman, Mr. Clay, did not show up until day six. And he wore a short-sleeved blue shirt. He had a bullhorn, and he was standing right next to Captain Johnson. I will never forget that. I will never forget being tear-gassed for three and a half hours on a one-way street with young people who did not have a place to go. And when I say one-way street, let me go backwards, because I've been saying it wrong for two years now. The street did not have a way out. We were stranded on a street that had no way out, and there were young children, 150 young children, who were in this area getting tear gassed, and our congressman did not show up. Do, do you think anybody is, is, is taking some long-term lessons from Ferguson or not? And as I said, now that the Democrats in Missouri have to sort of rebuild themselves, um, how does some of this fit in? I mean, how, how would you recommend that they use the lessons to fit in? You know, what I haven't talked about is labor, and there's some some labor organizations that were um, very attentive. A good example of that, the communication workers, absolutely committed um, to the voices of people who have been deprived for a very, very long time. Um, and there are other organizations that were also responsive. Um, and I was very proud of that. But I feel as though, and others see it as well, it's something that we confront as African Americans very, very often. The trades. Um, the trades have not been inclusive for a long time. One of my filibusters, I think that one was four or five hours long, um, I talked about a 137-year history between the labor movement and African Americans. Mm -hmm. And there was always a statement, we're going to do better, we're going to do better. And so how many decades is it going to be? We're already at 137. And if you don't mind me interjecting, the the weeks before Michael Brown, if you were in the St. Louis County Council as I was, there was a pretty fierce fight over yeah. over, uh, you know, percentages of workforce that were meant for for African Americans and women, and 
I remember that very vividly, and it juxtaposed very vividly with what happened after Ferguson. But continue. Yeah, uh, you're talking about a minority inclusion bill, I want to say. Yes. Um, and Steve Stanger fought against that, and it was a bill that Hazel Irby brought up again and again. Um, and also you had Charlie Dooley, who was very supportive of it as well. And organized labor worked against it. And as they are trying to clean up the dirty work that they've already done, um, they're now saying, we want a minority inclusion because Steve Stinger is probably going to have a primary Right. And he has done several things against the African-American community at this point. And I have made it very clear um, with organized labor that I am going to continuously talk about racial strife and inequity within the labor movement. You cannot accept we will not accept as African-Americans, many of which, um, like myself, the fact that we don't have minorities on job sites, the fact that we don't have the same representation. I literally get phone calls from people who are African American in the union and their 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 representative who is supposed to look out for them does not do an adequate job but looks out for their white counterpart. Like I get those phone calls. So you, you mentioned that Stinger is going to get primaried. Are are you thinking about it? Absolutely not. But whoever runs against him, I will be supporting them. One possibility is Jake Zimmerman, the county assessor. There could be, you know, an African American candidate. Here's what I here's what I've heard. It would be wonderful to have an African American candidate. Um, one thing I will say, um, I went to high school with Jake. And, um, you know, I'm pretty loyal to that because I am a St. Louisan after all. Yes. I've heard that the, the Democratic status quo, however, has their own candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of the problems within the Democratic Party where they decide who's going to run and kick out the other person. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I don't know who their decided candidate is, depending on who it is. I will make my determination on who I support. But right now I am anti-Stinger and yeah. will remain so. Well, just as a part thought because the uh, sixth district seat went Republican and assuming that Rochelle Walt Gray joins with Hazel Irby to be kind of part of this anti-Stanger coalition on the council. Stanger really only has two allies on the council, which was the same position Charlie Dooley was on mm-hmm. before he got primaried. He's not in a particularly favorable position. We'll have to see how that goes. Yeah. And you know what? Yeah, I, I agree. But I I think you get more done when you're in a situation like this. Yeah. And I'm glad I I helped the situation to get to this point. Well, we appreciate your time, as always. And for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would we follow you on the World Wide Web, Twitter, Facebook, anywhere else? On Twitter, I am at Maria, M-A-R-I-A, Chappelle, C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L-E, capital N. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long. It's my-